Hello, it's another episode of American History, 2 A to Z, and today we are doing the letter R, yeah. brought to you by Staccato. <laughs> but you're brought to you by Staccato presentation for some reason, yes, this, this episode is brought to you by the letter R and the number 3, because it's the third episode of our A to Z. Indeed, and we are recording live in the glamorous surroundings, not of Hollywood Hills, not even of metropolitan Glasgow, but of Huddersfield. Yes, indeed. A wet, damp, grizzly, drizzly even Huddersfield. Welcome to West Yorkshire. Indeed, indeed. Um, shall we get started? Yeah, let's bash let's on. I shall, the... I shall get the timer going. Let's drop in the hat and see what is the first... And the timer is go. Okay, the first R is... Rhodesia. Rhodesia. Now, I'm, I am pretty sure we decided to put Rhodesia in because this is something that there's a story you want to talk about here to do with white power nationalists. So, I mean, I could just bang on about what I know about Zimbabwe, you know, what is what Rhodesia was formed with. Formerly Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe, but instead I'm going to throw this one back to you to tell us all about white power and, Zim- and Rhodesia. But this is also interesting on, we're recording this on the day that Robert Mugabe mm-hmm. has yep. died. Uh so Rhodesia is is interesting because of its contemporary relevance and its relevance in things like the 1980s. So when Rhodesia became Zimbabwe and the armed struggle stopped and Robert Mugabe becomes leader uh, of, the, of the nation, Rhodesia actually is uh, an important place in the world for white American white power ideology in that it's seen as the front line of the struggle of white against the coloured races. And many white power activists go to Rhodesia to fight as mercenaries for the Ian Smith government. Mm-hmm. So the you know the ideas of you know this kind of white struggle against Black Africa filter are you know there's a circuit between white power in America and what's going on there. And thereafter, after the end of the Rhodesian struggle, the symbology of Rhodesia, the images and ideas and flags of white Rhodesia and that struggle are co-opted by white power activists. Even up to today, it's interesting to know that certain aspects of what could be called the alt-right of white nationalism have still used the Rhodesian, the white Rhodesian flag and the kind of the, the story of Rhodesia as almost as part of their kind of white power mythology. Mm-hmm. So Rhodesia has seen a, a real resurgence recently. You see white power activists wearing, making and wearing Rhodesian uniforms of the units like the Sela Scouts who were a Rhodesian Special Forces unit, mm-hmm. uh, white Rhodesian Special Forces unit uh, in, the, in the Independence War. So, yeah, Rhodesia still has a lot of re- relevance. Yeah, yeah. And over on this side of the Atlantic as well, there was obviously the Roads Must Fall campaign that took place yes. at the University of Oxford, which has a statue of Cecil Rhodes. Yes. Obviously, the name Rhodesia comes yeah, from. Yeah. Um, and, uh, Rhodes activ- scholars uh, and all these kind of things. Yeah, so. activists. But... Um, I don't actually know how that ended up. I don't think they did get it, get them to bring the statue down. I don't I'm know. A, I, I actually, I can't, I can't remember fell out how the news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably think it didn't actually happen. But anyway, Rhodesia. That's his yep. box off. Second one up. We're going controversial early doors. Okay. Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade. Well, you're more involved in the in studying the domestic politics of America. Mm-hmm. Probably better explain what Roe versus, versus Wade is. Yeah, I mean, Roe versus Wade is a Supreme Court's decision which legalizes abortion in 1973. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's not to be confused with giving someone a right to an abortion. I believe, like you know, it's more about saying it is legal and that the states cannot make it illegal. Um, now. It's in 1973, Roe versus Wade. I always forget if it's 73 or 74. 73. I think it's 73. 
And I think its biggest legacy is that it, more than anything else I can think of, inserted morality into American politics in terms of you cannot... Like abortion is, whether you are pro or anti-abortion, is a moral question, I think. It is where you stand on morality, or even if you're personally opposed, but you approve it legally, then, you know, it's a sort of moral decision. Well, def- and how you define morality. Yeah, yeah. That's I, mean, the I think the, how we popularly think of morality, yeah. I, I mean here. And so I think that in, that in some ways has poisoned the well of American politics, which is built on compromise. But it's hard to compromise if you morally believe something. And I th- I mean, while it, abortion is only one of many factors which has driven polarisation through American politics in the past um, 40 or 50 years, I think it's one, it is one of the key touchstones um, which that polarisation occurred because it became a moral... And a key culture wars yeah. touchstone up to, up to the present day. And linking back, actually here's a link back to the Wadija thing. Anti-abortion activism is also something that in the late 80s and into the 90s, a lot of white power activists engage with as well. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are connections between uh, between the anti... Because it's, you know, it's about policing and controlling women's bodies, yeah. particularly white women's bodies. So there, there are connections there between white power activism, white nationalism, and the anti-abortion uh, movement as well. There you go. So there you go. Uh, shall we draw the next one? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Okay, uh, what is up next? Da, 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 da. Ramparts. I'm assuming we're talking about the magazine. Yes, well, yes, we're not. Uh, what, what's, this, what's the thing about go to the Ramparts or something? No, we're not talking about that. But um, yeah, so the uh, the New Left magazine, which comes along in the 1960s. I mean, it, it's a very controversial magazine. I think one writer's referred to it as like the last of the muckraking magazines. Mm, yep, and, yep, yep. And one of its main stories is this is obviously appearing at a time of the Vietnam War. Yeah. And it does the, this famous story, The Children of Vietnam. It's a photojournalist piece and it's, you know, it does, uh, it really brings home for those who read it just what the American war in Vietnam is doing to the, the Vietnamese um, that are there and the effects of napalm, the effects of all all the sort of military that's that's taking place, the military efforts that are taking place against the Vietnamese, um, and it's it's said to have sort of inspired Martin Luther King's decision to finally come out against the Vietnam War publicly, and indeed I think they even had one one. Um, story the cover story which was a picture of the four of the editors of Ramparts ripping up the draft cards and you could see their names on it which was a very controversial thing to do honest, obviously so yeah it doesn't last that long it folds in the mid 1970s because it wasn't financially viable but a, a very significant magazine in its time yeah and well, and also it's one of the publications that exposes uh, the CIA's role in the cultural cold war and the CIA funding of various kind of intellectual uh, organisations and arts organisations to promote Americanness uh, mm-hmm. during the Cold War and American ideas of freedom and liberty and all these these kind yeah. of things. Uh, so yeah, Ramparts, uh, yeah, crucially important. And it's one of the magazines, uh, actually, that is instrumental in helping to popularise Kennedy assassination conspiracy theories. Yeah. yeah. So, so. There, there you go. Yeah. Uh, also available online, I think a lot of its more famous editions on unz.org, which is a great website if you're fantastic. looking to research further. Um, oh, okay. Uh, we're travelling back in time now. Okay. Republican we Motherhood. Oh, Republican Motherhood. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So there's something kind of, I think both of us learned about when we were first started teaching. Uh, on the American History on 2 the, course. On the American <laughs> History 2 course. Edinburgh, Republican Motherhood, yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially, this kind of ideological position in the post-revolutionary, early national, early Republican period, where because women were not allowed to have any defined involvement in the politics of the day, Mm-hmm. And having zero control over uh, over these kind of things, the Republican motherhood was this you know sop that you know women can contribute to the the health of the republic and the strength of the republic by being Republican mothers by incul by having children yeah. and inculcating their children with the ideas of the American Republic, the ideas in the Constitution, the Declaration, yeah. all of these kind of things. I mean, it's very much a let's keep women in a very traditional domestic sphere mm. while giving the appearance of allowing them to contribute in some way to yeah. the political health Although of the some, some did view it as very important. I mean, the, I think a sign of that was the fact you get very politicised um, as to over who women would marry. So, like, you know, there used to be a lot of sayings over, you know, like, if uh, the Jeffersonian Republicans, if you were... If, if they had a daughter, they were very keen that they married another Jeffersonian Republican. Republican but yeah. it would sort of showed that they viewed it as a political, an important political role. The fact that um, the women were supposed to raise their children as good, solid, you know, small R Republicans, but then it also became partisan in that way as yes, well. So, yes. yeah, I mean, as you say, it's mostly you know a sop and a, a very much a way of uh, you know just giving something to the ladies. Um, but uh, you know, to I, use the drop on the words of Abigail, the great Abigail Adams mm-hmm. about yeah. remembering the ladies which John Adams and these cronies ignore. Yeah. <laughs> right, what are we up next? We have R is for Rockefeller. Okay, so there are many Rockefellers. Many obviously, Rockefellers. Obviously big John D being the, the most, was he not the richest man in the world when he was alive? I think he might have been. Yes. Or when, when are Certainly one of, the, one of the robber barons who were like ridiculously rich. Yes. I mean, I think you mean job creating entrepreneurs, but yeah. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I guess that my main experience of the Rockefellers is Nelson, who is John D. Rockefeller's grandson, I think. And Nelson Rockefeller is most known for his, he's governor of New York for most of the 1960s and, and into the 1970s before then becoming Gerald Ford's vice president for a brief point. Um, and Nelson Rockefeller is kind of interesting because he is a liberal Republican so sort of liberal in fact that Lyndon Johnson wants Nelson Rockefeller to succeed him rather than Hubert Humphrey because he thinks Rockefeller will continue the Great Society um, more effectively but Rockefeller is also one of these guys that actually is really damaging to the cause that he supports he's not He's not. He's quite a selfish character. He is. He attracts a huge amount of animosity amongst other Republicans in the party. He basically, through all his money, inherited wealth, controls the funding of liberal Republican things. So if Rockefeller doesn't like you, you don't get funding. That type of stuff. And he was so desperate to be president. He runs quite a few times for it. That he essentially gets in the way of other more moderate liberal Republicans who could have. Um, be be more successful. So ultimately, it helps lead in the demise of the liberal moderate Republicans. Um, as as it as the parties turning more conservative in the sixties and seventies. So yeah, that would be my. There we go, Nelson Rockefeller. Right, let's pick something yeah. else. Let's move on. Another R. Right. Oh, okay. Rand, the think tank. The think tank. Rand Corporation. A uh, contraction of research and development. 
so in Santa Monica, California, I think they're based. Uh, so Rand are set up in the kind of early days of the Cold War as this think tank uh, for the United States Air Force. Uh, as far as I'm, as far as I recall, it might be the military overall, but I'm sure the Air Force was involved uh, in the early days. Uh, and it was set up uh, with the Air Force and I think Douglas, one of the big military contractors, they made a lot of bombers and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was it was set up to provide uh, a think tank for the military. But you know we are now entering a kind of the period of Cold War of atomic and then later nuclear confrontation, and one of their big tasks was how do we fight a nuclear war how do we how do we deal with the 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 nuclear revolution as it's referred to so out of rand you see also these kind of things like uh you know game theory is, is big uh in rand uh, all of these big figures and you end ends up being very influential in terms of american political military thinking uh but with unintended consequences because out of rand you have daniel ellsberg mm-hmm. in the 1960s the man who leaks the pentagon papers as well, he was a Rand consultant. He worked yeah. within Rand. He was good friends with, you know, with Harry Rowan, who was like the head of Rand at the time and a big figure in there. So, so Rand as kind of like influences Cold War thinking, but it also has the unintended consequences of the Pentagon Papers and Which the effect perhaps that has more than any document served to undermine faith in American government. Yeah, uh, Pentagon ab- Papers, absolutely, yeah. and because of you know the release of the Pentagon Papers, it causes the Nixon administration. To, you know, go hog wild over leaks is mm. one of the things that you know, and leads to Watergate and yeah. all of these things. So Rand has this kind of like octopus-like influence yeah. on all sorts. It of also things. influences domestic policy and stuff like that. And and the my f- final thing on Rand, uh, nice little um, tip bit is the fact that it's I believe it's di- original director was it someone can um, became the sort of archetype for the main character in Doctor Strangelove oh Herm- uh, yeah Herm- Herman Can. he was yeah. a nuclear strategist he was yeah, he was he part was... of the bland corporation I play on the Rand corporation yeah yeah. Can was the uh, he, his famous book was called uh, On Nuclear War mm. uh, which was a play on the classic text and strategy Carl von Clausewitz On War uh, from the 19th century uh, yeah and he was yeah, one of the here's how you fight a nuclear war. Uh, I've got a copy of it actually. So, and it's a fascinating book to read because not only is it about nuclear war within a Cold War context, there's all sorts of ideas about how the world is, particularly to do with race. And he talks about the spread of nuclear weapons at one point, and he says we we may reach, and this is a quote, although I may mangle it slightly, that we may reach the point that uh, even a Hottentot can develop a nuclear weapon. There's all sorts of racist assumptions about the third world. I'm going to be honest, I don't world. even know where that racial epithet is. What is a Hottentot? A Hottentot, uh, Hottentot is uh, uh, South African, English, and the influence of Dutch, and was used to refer to the people of, uh, of Southern Africa, uh, well, particular tribes like the Khoikhoi. Uh, I'm probably terribly mispronouncing that, and became a racialized epithet. Oh, okay. uh, to uh, used to apply to uh, black Africans of all kinds. It, it becomes this racialized epithet, and I think that's the sense in which can. Cool. Well, that's enough. It. Can let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we can. No, we can't. Uh, okay, next we have ooh, Rambo. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online. Schedule package pickups through the dashboard and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Ah, ramble. Um, well, I mean, I'm going to skip. The, the first ramble comes out, I think it's something like 1982. Yeah, but I mean, I'm probably more interested in talking about the second one because actually it's one of those rare sequels that's actually more popular than the original movie, First Blood Part 2. Yes. Um, where Rambo is sent into, into basically back into Vietnam um, to try and rescue prisoners of war. Yes. Yeah. Or actually, the government send them in in the film hoping that he won't find anything in there for the disprint, but then he does find something and he finds out that also the government's been useless and that Rambo all by himself has to has to slay all these nasty Vietnamese and bring back these prisoners of war that the government have failed. So it's all about, it's 1980s all about, it's playing into tropes of the fact that the government, that basically the Americans could have won the Vietnam War had the government been more competent, um, had it fought it with more... Uh, vim and vigor and competence and obviously Rambo goes in there as a one man hero wrecking machine and, and sorts everything out interestingly that comes out in 1985 what else comes out in 1985 Rocky IV which Sylvester Stallone is also starring in as the main character and he is bringing down the Soviet Union in the form of Ivan Drago Iceman um, all by himself so it's really as a pair I, I don't think you can view them separately you know mm. the fact that you've got Rambo 2 and or um, Rocky Rocky Four coming out in the same year, very much playing into that Reaganism, you know, like individ- individualistic strength against but, nasty. But it's enemies. quite if we to turn back to the first film, First Blood. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, the plot is utterly ludicrous, but it's actually pretty well acted. Mm-hmm. Sylvester Stallone and Brian Dennehy as the the sheriff, the bad sheriff who just causes. John Rambo, all these, all this trauma is that it deals with the effect of Vietnam on, on veterans. Mm-hmm. You, know, John Rambo, troubled, troubled veteran. At the start of the film, he's met up with his friend whose diet dead died of the after effects of Agent Orange, and he's wandering around him. He's almost kind of like lost in America, and there's an interesting thing about the, but it it goes into this survivalist you know, kind of rugged individualism and actually leads to a resurgence in the sale of kind of like big-ass survival knives. You know, like, you know, it's almost solely responsible for that kind of thing. But I should just add that the director of uh, First Blood, Ted Kotcheff, was actually instrumental in one of the key moments in Australian cinema because he directed a 1971 film called Wake and Fright, mm-hmm. which is one of the key texts of modern Australian uh, cinema. And it's quite a remarkable film. It's gut-wrenching and, and quite remarkable. And First Blood Part 2 is directed by George Cosmatos, whose son, Panos Cosmatos, is also a film director, and he made the also remarkable uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow in Canada. And then more recently, a film called Mandy, starring Nick Cage as a completely unhinged Nick Cage character. 
So there you go. Lots Come of, for the American history, stay for the obscure film. Lots fact. of film. Beyond the Black Rainbow is genuinely remarkable. Do you know what? Okay, our next one is basically a continuation of what we've just been talking about. Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Red Dawn's a terrible film. Go Wolverines. Uh, <laughs> so Red Dawn comes out in 1984. Huh, interesting. Uh, and it's about a Soviet slash Cuban slash Nicaraguan. Oh, the baddies and the baddies. Oh, the Sandinistas. Uh, invasion of uh, the United States. And these Soviet paratroopers, you know, parachute. Uh, and, and the United States has taken over. In the background, there's a world war maybe taking place. It's kind of, it's never well defined. So this young group of high school kids who named themselves the Wolverines after their high school football team mascot. Uh, made up of Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell. Who remembers C. Thomas Howell these days? Uh, and Charlie Sheen uh, end up forming the Wolverines as this guerrilla movement to resist the Soviets in this brave, outdoorsy, survivalist kind of manner. Mm-hmm. And it's it was remade uh, recently with, I think, North Korea oh. as the bad guy. I can't remember who's the bad guy. I've never watched the remake yeah. of it. But it's it's not a very good film, but was... Created by John Milius. Also, it gave Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey the first chance to hook up in a yep. film before they would go on to, to, to star in the little-known Dirty Dancing. Dirty Dancing. But connecting back to the Vietnam thing, John Milius is also one of the screenwriters on Apocalypse Now. There you go. There we are. Cool. I think that's us done mad movies of the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, oh no, we could spend the entire podcast on that. Okay, uh, the, this is one for you, Mark. The Rumford Housing Act. Yeah, so... I have literally nothing to say about that. You have nothing to say about nothing it. To say well, about I'll it. give you plenty to say go, by the end of this. Go, so go, basically, go. the Rumford Housing Act is something that's passed in California in 1963, which is basically the California legislature say all these little unofficial, unwritten rules that say that essentially black or any other type of people that are not white cannot move into this neighbourhood, that estate agents would have and the homeowners would have this these sort of unofficial packs um, to keep um, African-Americans mostly out of their neighbourhoods. The Romford Housing Act is about getting rid of that, about getting rid of housing segregation, essentially. Now, Californians, a lot of them weren't particularly happy about this, um, and so they, they launch one of these direct democracy initiative and referendums where you get what's called Prop 14, which is to repeal the Romford Housing Act, and that is put on the ballot in 1964. Now, 1964 is the year that... Lyndon Johnson absolutely clobbers the conservative Barry Goldwater, who's just voted against the Civil Rights Act. So, big win for racial liberalism. Or is it? Because Prop 14 passes with 65% of the vote, despite the fact that the California governor, Pat Brown, said, if we pass this into law, we are going to enshrine into California legislation a more, like, react reactive racially law than Mississippi and Alabama have on their books. He literally said that. He said, we're going to be worse than Mississippi and Alabama. And California said that. And went, that's cool. <laughs> like, so they go and pass. Even San Francisco, by majority, passes this thing. Liberal San Francisco. So it's this weird dichotomy how you've got on one hand LBJ seeming to win this big high tide of liberalism election on the back of the Civil Rights Act and everything. And yet California which at the time is not the liberal bastion it is now, but it's not a conservative state either. It's sort of in between, is passing, is trying to reinforce housing segregation. Um, 
it kind of reminds me of when Obama wins in 2008 and yet at the same time California bans gay marriage. It's like a sort of similar dynamic going on there. Um, but essentially the California Supreme Court actually rules Prop 14 illegal and housing segregation goes, desegregation does go through. But there you go. That is a run for housing at Delta. That was very succinct. Well done. Excellent. Thank you. Next. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Republicans. This is you. This is your kind of thing. Republicans, go. <laughs> Do you not have any thoughts on Republicans, though? No. Okay, right. I'll, I'll take this. In. So essentially, I mean, obviously, since I've, I've studied the party for a long time and uh, I could talk about them for hours and hours. But I guess all I'll say is that I, the Republicans are probably the reason I study American history. In a weird way, um, because in there I was growing up, I was coming to political maturity. One would say in the early two thousands and the Bush years and everything, and I guess I just was per- slightly perplexed sitting as a you know, uh, in Scotland and looking at how far right Republicans were compared to say, for example, the Conservative Party in Britain or conservative parties around Europe. And I guess the sort of underlying motivation a lot of my research is to understand how the Republican Party got to that point. Um, you know, what was the motivation? What happened there? Because in the 1960s in the party I studied, they aren't more right than the Conservatives really in Britain. And, it, and it's quite interesting. I mean, probably if I was growing up now, this sort of Conservatives in the other parts of the Western world have caught up in some ways in terms of how, how far right the, the, they've gone. But, but yeah, so that... I, I that would probably be the one thing I would say about Republicans that I can keep to under one minute. Is there a way, do you think there's a way back to a more liberal Republican party in the United States? Or is it too far gone? Is polarisation and partisanship just gone too far? Well, I mean, at this point, we're, the, 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 the sort of, the, the globe's been shaken up so much that the, the, it's hard to tell what's conservative anymore. Um, you know, the, the Republican party has now essentially become a populist party under Trump. Um, and it isn't really all about small government conservatism anymore. So it's, although you could argue how much it ever was, but it's it's really hard to say what is right, what is left at present. Um, so I think there's a possibility you get back to something, you get a sort of less far right um, policy, but what that would be, I would have no idea. Great. The next thing we move on to is Royalty. Right, so I literally wrote this down because I just find it mad how much some Americans care about British royalty. Like, you guys escape the royalty. A lot of us over here don't care about the royalty. And yet, anytime I'm in America, one of the first pro- stories on any, you know, good morning America is, oh my God, there's a royal baby. Oh my God, there's a royal marriage. Oh my... It just perplexes me. Well, the one I like is uh, in 1985 when uh, Charles and Diana... Surround about that. Visit the United mm-hmm. States and uh, and von, put old von Wagen uh, introduces her as Princess David, <laughs> which I I thought that's that's great, fantastic. Yeah. He was obviously confusing Camp David uh, with uh, yeah. their, his guests. So. And it's also the one where you have um, the King and Queen. I can't remember which one it would have been. One of the Georges or one of the Edwards. I forget. I think it was one of the Georges. Maybe the one that had the speech impediment. That the film was made about how they visit the Roosevelts just before the outbreak of the Second World War. Mm. And uh, there's quite a poignant scene as they're leaving and, you know, the Roosevelts confide into the... Or Eleanor Roosevelt confides in her diary all about, you know, how she watched them go and thought about what they were having to deal with and that they were on the brink of war and everything. So it was all very poignant. Yeah. 
Speaking of which, the what? next one is Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Brackets, whichever. Whichever. So, uh, I mean, the obvious ones would be to talk about the presidents. But let's not. Uh, Kim Roosevelt. A Kermit Roosevelt Jr. Okay. Uh, career intelligence officer. Uh, big mover and shaker within the early... Uh, Central Intelligence Agency, grandson of Theodore Roosevelt, and the man behind the Iranian coup of 1953. Mm-hmm. Fascinating figure. He is one of us, what Hugh, the historian Hugh Wilford would describe as one of the CIA's secret Arabists. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, it challenges the idea that from the get-go, the US was behind Israel mm-hmm. foursquare. That doesn't happen until the 1960s, really. But in the kind of early CIA, you have these figures like Kermit Roosevelt and uh, Miles Copeland, uh, who are romantic Arabists. They have this attachment to the Middle East. They've grown up in stories of you know a thousand and one Arabian Nights and all all of these kind of things of you know tales of you know uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And his telling of what it's like, you know, and they have this kind of false Orientalist mm. notion of, but they're very, very sentimentally and emotionally and intellectually attached to the Arab Middle East. Uh, I'd become heavily involved in the early CIA's activities uh, there. And Kim Roosevelt is one of the key movers and shakers. And of course, you need to make the point that when it comes to Iran, Iran is not Arab, Iran is Persian. And uh, when Mohammed Mossadegh becomes prime minister in 1951 and is a uh, a Persian nationalist uh, wants to nationalise the oil industry because the Iranian people's money is getting stolen from them by mm-hmm. primarily British uh, corporations. Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is now BP, are basically robbing the Iranians blind. He said, no, 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 we're not going to have any of this. And this all leads to a kind of complex situation. Now, uh, Mossadegh has unpopularity within Iran as well. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of stuff. But essentially, the CIA and MI6 are involved in this coup. Kermit Roosevelt is one of the key figures uh, and Mossadegh is deposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the Shah, comes to power and is there till 1979 until the revolution as America's man in Iran. I that think. is impressive. So you got Roosevelt and you managed to bring it to your expertise in the Middle East. That was impressive. There we go. Um, my one thing on Roosevelt, I'll say, is it's one of the great what if moment, what what if moments of American history when Roosevelt's just won the election and someone attempts to assassinate him. Just Mrs. Franklin, Roosevelt, D. Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1932-33, America in the depths of the Great Depression, he's about to usher in the New Deal and then lead the country through World War II and they just miss him and kill the mayor that has stood beside Anton him. Anton Cermak. Is yeah. it Cermak? Yeah. Mayor of Chicago? Uh, I think so, yeah. And if uh, and if he'd hit, then you would have got John Nance Gardner and a Southern Conservative would have been president. Now, I wonder how American history would have turned out. We don't do counterfactual. Mm-hmm. We do not do counterfactual. Next up. Red Scare. You can take your choice. Um, so I'm going to go with the first Red Scare. The first, first um, obviously brought on by the Russian Revolution and the intense nationalism of the First World War. Um, and one of the things I always forget is that America kept its foot in Russia for a while. Like the fact there were still US troops trying to return, like uh, reverse the fighting with the White Army, Army. Yeah, yeah. until 1920. But also, I think the Red Scare has served in history to obscure what else is going on in 1919, which is actually the Red Summer, which has nothing to do with communism or anything, which is the violence that was happening between, uh, mostly being perpetrated on black people in America through a series of riots of 
white people who were unhappy that African Americans were seemingly more uppity and assertive having gone to fight in the First World War and also taken part in the industries and therefore had flocked to the North as the beginning of the Great Migration and you have the Chicago riots and a host of yeah. other riots and then this culminates a couple of years later in the Tulsa riots where you actually have African American neighbourhoods being bombed bombed from the air yeah I mean which I don't which think is, is ins- talked about which enough. is insane that's not we, that is not talked about enough you know you have white supremacists literally using aircraft to bomb black neighbourhoods yeah it's crazy so uh, yeah I went a bit left field on the Red Scare but yeah that, I always find that that, that's, that obscures connect, connect, all the things going connected on. to that there's, a, there's, yeah. there's another R uh, race riot mm. there's a term that's always used to kind of obscure the fact that it's not a race riot it's white people killing and committing violence against black people you know it's often you know the, the race riot oh well you know there's you know fine people on both sides no pretty much you know it's yeah I mean it depends it, it white, depends, white, white it depends what one you're Americans. referring yeah. to like I mean the Tulsa example for it should not be Tulsa race riot, riot. yeah, yeah. but the term is used <clears throat> blanket to yeah. yeah 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 scholars argue over riot rebellion all these kind of terms when it comes to what, what to use I'll just conclude with uh, the second Red Scare mm-hmm and something we I think we always teach students, and mm-hmm. one thing we always try to really hammer across is the fact that don't just think of McCarthy. It's not McCarthy come is late to the game. Mm-hmm. It's an electoral strategy for McCarthy. He's facing the election. Oh, oh, see, as part of this, yeah. Could you tell? Could you tell our listeners the teaching tool you used to use with second year students when it came to the McCarthyist class? Because I always thought it was genius, but I never had the self confidence to pull it off. Is this the one of like having a, a plant in yes, the class? Yes, yes. So, right. yeah. But cool, let me like, conclude. Yeah, like, conclude, McCar- conclude for yourself. It's not all about McCarthy because it starts way before. You have the, you know, in 19- it's the Smith Act to 1941, you know, which is the first uh, kind of... Well, I mean, Hugh Act's around in the 1930s. Yeah, but, but the Smith yeah. Act, Act is the first one, that, the, the first law that explicitly targets communists. I mean, it's fascist as well, mm-hmm. but targets communists as well. So... It's going on for a long, long time. Uh, I did, and I would never do this now, actually, because it's really difficult to pull off. And actually, in retrospect, I wouldn't have done it. But it was my early days of teaching. So I asked a student who I knew was uh, confident and willing to engage this, that I would say that someone has been kind of bad-mouthing the course and the classes on social media. And I know who it is. And I would pick the student I had set up uh, and, and the thing was to see if any students stood up for their fellow student. I mean, mm-hmm. I really went for them and they eventually kicked them out of the class. And it was always the case that nobody stood up. And I was like, until there was one occasion where someone went, where's your evidence for this? And I was like, brilliant. Yes, yeah. that's it. Because, uh, you know, the, the idea of this is what evidence do you have? McCarthy is like zero evidence. I have a just, list of 400 just, names. I have two billion know. names. Everyone yeah. in America, everyone who isn't McCarthy. Uh, it was the evidence-free, accusatory, haranguing, don't give people a chance to speak kind of thing and see if people would stand up. And that was one of the problems with the Red Scare is a lot of people didn't mm-hmm. for fear of their own position. So I wouldn't do that now. I think it was actually a deeply problematic teaching method <laughs> and I would not do it now. I loved hearing about it. but uh, yeah, it was... So you may have heard the timer ran out. So I'm just going to leave you with what you would, what unfortunately we're not going to discuss in the last thing. And I, if you're upset about this, listeners, then write into your local newspapers, right? And then, or write to our Twitter account and ask us to do an episode on it. Ayn Rand will not be discussed objectivism awaits for another day and we're not going to be discussing reconstruction radio 
Rikers Island. Oh, I think And the last one, that. religion. Ah. So that was R. There we go. Who knows what letter we'll be back with in a month's time. And we're off to record the episode of Lyndon Johnson's America, The War, which you will hear before you hear this episode. So, thank you very much. Thank you, and, and goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs>